because of where we are and I suppose what we're doing, you know, you, you've just got people from all over the world coming in and the story's going far and wide, you know. And, and it's, it's a great feeling to, to think, well, you know, my ideas actually come to fruition. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Australia is such a huge landmass. It encompasses just about all climates and conditions, meaning just about any produce can thrive somewhere across the land. In the tropics, particularly Darwin and the Northern Territory, the temperature is consistently warm and humid and an incredible environment for some of the most stunning ingredients in the world. What's it like as a chef immersing yourself in a region like this? Martin Boucher is the chef patron of Fat Mango in Darwin CBD. Martin, how are you? Good morning, how are you? Good. You've cooked all over the world, but find yourself in uh, tropical Darwin. What, what was it like when you first arrived there? Uh, warm. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, I, I ended up in the Northern Territory sort of by mistake um, about 10 years ago. Somebody offered me a trial for two weeks and said, do you want to come to Darwin and have a trial? And I went, well, I've not been to Darwin before. So I got on the plane. I was down in Adelaide Hills at the time working working there and uh, got on the plane, middle of the night. I had a, a mud map as to where I was going to be staying. I got off the plane and it was like the heat just hit. It was humid. It was hot. It was dark. I tripped over a cane toad, first time I'd ever come across one of them. Uh, yeah, it, it was, and I thought, what the hell have I come to? Uh, and yeah, 10 years later, here we are still here, owning my own restaurant, having worked around the traps, as it were, uh, got my own little place and love it. Absolutely adore it. I think what it's got up here is just unique. You know, you're five minutes away from the bush, you're five minutes away from the ocean. It's the people are really chilled out. You don't have the craziness that we have down in. I mean, I'm lucky enough, I, I get to get out of Darwin every now and then and go down to Melbourne or Sydney or now the borders are back open. We get to go international as well. We're an hour and a half from Bali. You know, it's closer to get to Bali than it is to get to Melbourne. Um, so it's pretty cool to go and have a long weekend away, you know. But uh, yeah, love the place. Beautiful, beautiful country. Beautiful people. Beautiful produce. Tell us a little bit about the the food scene and and restaurant offering in in Darwin. It's got an awful lot better. Uh, like ten years ago, it was yeah, salt and pepper squared. Overcooked steaks, uh, chicken parmies, and that was, uh, but lots of lots of Asian food, which was uh, quite new to me. Um, great Vietnamese, Chinese, Malay, Singaporean, uh, a real good melting pot. Uh, and what's happened over the last ten years? It's got more and more cosmopolitan. Uh, we've got some brilliant restaurants in town now that that. You know, one of the reasons I opened Fat Mango is because I wanted to make a change to the food scene uh, and do something where people weren't just going out to 
put calories in the belly, you know, it's like go out to go out and, and experience dining as I used to remember it when I was a kid. Uh, when we used to eat out and about in the UK and around Europe and, you know, you spend hours eating uh, and I wanted to do something like that. So the food scene's got a lot more cosmopolitan up here. Um, like I say, there's some, there's some brilliant places now and what we're doing, uh, producing a, we even changed the name to Cuisine Australiana because um, I, I hate that phrase modern Australian because um, it's about as old as me now. You know, it was coined coined years and years and years ago to signify something. I don't know. I, I genuinely don't know what what the classification was. But all my old bosses, whenever I was over here, said, "Oh, we need to write a new menu, please. Uh, can you do something modern Australian?" And I I couldn't work out what it was. You know, because everything was a robbed idea from another country. You know. A palmy is a is an eggplant palmy from Italy. You know we've got Lebanese food that we that we use. We've got fish and chips that you know you guys in Australia rob from the UK allegedly. Um, you know, or, or the Kiwis claim ownership to it, but there was nothing that was traditionally Australian. Uh, so that's that's how we came about. So I wanted to buy this great produce we've got up here. Um, and only use Australian ingredients, only use Australian flavours um, to develop food. So the, over the last 10 years, it's got, yeah, there's a lot more places doing that now. There's some pretty um, special ingredients up in the region that you're in. Is, is there anything that sort of has stood out for use in your time there that's become a real feature of your cooking as a result of you being in Darwin? Oh, the list's endless. You know, not just the greens, the the Asian greens that we pick up regularly at the markets at Rapid Creek. Um, you know, mangoes, mangoes. Like we we produce something like eighty percent plus of the nation's mangoes up here in Darwin. Um, so you know, we we use a lot of that, especially now they're they're in season. So we've got about eight or nine different varieties of mango that we use for different things, and we use the whole thing. You know, we dehydrate the skin, we roast the stones, we make our own orgiats, make our own liqueurs with it. So you get zero wastage. We make gels and purees and syrups and all sorts of bits and bobs, all from that one one piece of fruit. But each mango has its own flavorings you know so you've got like knockdowns and r2e2s kps etc 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 um and they've all got their own little eccentricities but one of the great ingredients that we use up here uh we, we use a lot of green ants of all all things um which which cost a fortune uh in fairness um so we were buying them from the guys out at Man and Greeder. So over in Arnhem Land, there's a there's a community up there, Man and Greeder, uh, and they were foraging for us. So Layla and Don, the elders, um, used to organise everybody, and we'd we'd get things like bacho radish and bush potatoes and all all sorts of weird and wonderful things, and, and play with them with the flavours. Uh, but they also supplied us with the green ants. Uh, but then we decided at 500 bucks a kilo, I mean, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of ants in a kilo of, of ants, but um, we'd forage them off the trees. 
you know, because they're, they're indigenous and local to around here. So we cleaned most of my garden out uh, of the ants' nests. We left a couple so we, it became sustainable, um, you know, and then friends and just the various gardens because they're, they're everywhere, you know, down the golf course and, uh, you know, <laughs> you'd go down there with a, with a plastic bag and put the ants' nests in, freeze them down, put them in torpor, then separate them all out with the eggs and the, you know, all all the various worker ants, and then we'd use them because the the thorax is amazing. But then, of course, you've got you know people using that all over the country you now, making gin out of it. Danny Motlop, a local lad, you know, make, makes a great green ant gin. You know, and that's got a few floating around. But, uh, but yeah, so that that was one of the great ingredients. And then, you know, you've got about 20 different wattles that we use. There's, oh, my, the, list, the list's endless, you know. Oh, I want to go back to green ants for a second. How, how do you use them? Is there a dish or two that, um, that you do that sort of exemplifies how to get the best out of them? Well, we, we made an ant's nest and it became a bit of a signature dessert, um, so it was a we created a, a red centre dirt uh, which is just a, a chocolate caramel and sort of dehydrated um, raspberry uh, we made that into a dirt with a, a white chocolate shell um, sort of half sphere shell and then in that we made a, a mango curd and a lime curd um, and we we put that into the gel, made a little bit of coral, again, using the radish, uh, and then garnished it with the green ants. Uh, but then we changed that to make it a bit um, Jurassic Parkish. So we put the ants into a um, like a clear caramel, basically. So it looked like amber, uh, you know, which was, that was pretty cool. Uh, that was a great little dish. And, you know, we've, we've had some, some great publicity over that. Uh, you know, it's, that's gone international. Uh, we've got um, guys like Simon Calder coming from the UK, uh, bringing a film crew. We've got an American film crew that's been in. We've had a couple of sort of local, the, the Channel 10s and the Channel 7s have been down and, you know, and, and gone over it. It's, it's, it really took off. Uh, but then we've got all the weird ones now. So, you know, you, you can't keep things the same all the time. So we've produced a dish now using crocodile tongue, you know. But, uh, that's pretty funky. And I was down in Melbourne showcasing that the other week. Um, so we just, you know, miso soak it. And uh, it's like a, like a miso brine that we use. And then that goes char grill and we make a sort of uh, potato and caraway style cream sauce um, and then a bush tomato oil that we use with it as well so you know there's i think the, the list's endless uh when it comes down to local ingredients but it's i love to use things that make people go hmm you know and they don't quite understand it uh, and they don't quite get it but then when they taste it you just get that expression over their face of oh my god that's amazing you know I, and i think that's the that's the work of a chef to be honest with you i think that's what we're here for we're not just here to to burn things uh and put them on a plate you know it's it's, it's sort of an alchemy uh turning 
a product into something absolutely special. Uh, and and to me, that's that's always been the job. Everywhere I've ever been, we've tried to do that. But you know, I I love what I'm doing at the moment. Absolutely passionate about it. It's great. Well, I want to explore a little bit later on a bit more what you're doing with Fat Mango and and helping evolve the culinary scene up there in Darwin. But take us back to when you were young. What what sort of role did food play in your family when you were a kid? Oh, well, I'm I'm fifth generation hospo. You know, I like we we grew up in pubs and restaurants, and you know, I I remember working with my mum in the kitchen. Oh God, I must have been six or seven, I suppose, and we were doing bits and bobs. You know, back in the day, like my grandparents were the first in Cheshire, which was my home state in the UK, uh, to do pub food. You know, it's like back in the days when it used to be like a pickled egg or a pickled onion or a, a manky old pie from the bakery down the, you know, on the on the back shelves that probably stood there for a week. Um, and then they started doing food in a basket, you know, there's like chicken chips in a basket, scampi back in those days, uh, which was monkfish, of course, um, because nobody knew what to do with the monkfish. Uh, so scampi in the UK, breaded nuggets and monkfish and, and chips, sausage and chips, things like that. Um, my mum was one of the first to have a microwave uh, back in the UK. That was bad. God, that would be back in the very early 70s um, and do it, doing things. It was, you know, so, yeah, I always grew up around food. Um, yeah, when, when we used to go out on school trips, you know, and people would take their little, um, lunch boxes with them on the school trip, <laughs> uh, you know, everybody, everybody got the, the cheese sandwiches and the ham sandwiches and the egg sandwiches and whatever. And, you know, I was, I was one of them. I'd, I'd go with potted shrimps, you know, and, and things like that. And we, we'd have some great awesome food coming out of the restaurants that we had at the at the pubs and the hotels um so yeah i know that was they were great memories going to Ironbridge gorge in the uk it was a real old industrial park you know i was probably about 11 10 something like that uh and then yeah i've got these potted shrimps so yeah good fun good fun days your career in the in the UK, you did, you did many things, but what, what were the real highlights for you in in your time there? Oh, so we set up. Um, one of the great things we did was there's a there's a food festival in the UK called Chester Food and Drink. Uh, and 21 years ago, I set that up with a couple of mates, um, and we did a. We did it basically in the in the church hall. You know, there was a couple of couple of tables and a couple of producers. And that's now one of the biggest food shows in the UK. Um, over every Easter, uh, it's down in in Chester. You know, and they took over the race course. So Chester race course, the oldest race course in the UK. Uh, and there's there's different stage areas and you know working along people like Michael Keynes and oh, Simon Rimmer and uh, James Martin and and people like that doing things. There's a there was a young lad. I remember being on stage and we were we were interviewing. I'd, I'd flown over from oh we were in Spain at the time, so I'd flown over from Spain to do the show. 
And we were on stage inter interviewing this young lad, a uh, lad called Dion Jones. Uh, he was one of the first Brits to win the Escoffier. Uh, you know, it's, it's, there's, there's so many great competitions around the world, but he, had, he ended up with a Roux scholarship, so Albert and Michelle Roux. Um, uh, doing this, this scholarship and he worked with them for a while uh, and he's now now running his own kitchens uh, in Cheshire uh, and making a really big name for him and you know I think that was his first competition so I, I always keep a, an eye on people I've come across you know and I, all, all my juniors from back in the day my waiting on staff um, you know, that, that came to me at 14 and 15 years of age. Uh, and I still keep in touch with them now. And it's 30 years down the line. You know, some are married and kids and some have gone off to do other great things. And uh, some are still in the, in the industry. A um, couple own their own restaurants. Uh, you know, yeah, it's, I think that's a real privilege of what I do. Um, you know, I think the the following on the sort of mentorship, which I still do nowadays. Uh, but I think those are the great memories of, you know, from those days back in Farndon in Chester, uh, and then, yeah, just doing, seeing seeing where they are now. You know, that's a cool thing. You spent about a decade in Spain, but what, what triggered the move uh, for you to Spain? Uh, I burnt out, basically. Um, I was doing too much. You were up in the morning going to the markets, you know, Liverpool and Manchester market, uh, and you were still in the kitchen at 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night sometimes. Uh, and they were just long days. And, you know, back in those days, we didn't really look after ourselves. Uh, so you were putting, I know, I was putting 70, 80 hours a week in on a regular basis. And it just got too much. And uh, I, we were doing very well, you know, as a business. The restaurant was doing very well. And uh, I ended up buying mum and dad uh, a property in Spain, you know, because they, they like Spain. And we'd got this little uh, apartment villa over there. And uh, I started going over there on, on little breaks just to try and, you know, get everything together. And basically one day... Uh, went across the road and there was this uh, Merendero. So Merendero is like a beach restaurant uh, over the road. And you go there and it's a great, beautiful beach. Um, uh, yeah, Penion Co player in Torox. Um, and he went over there and we had a bottle of rosé and then we had another bottle of rosé and we had some sardines on sticks and uh, called Espetos and some paella and, you know, a bit of ham on and another bottle of rosé and about five bottles of rosé in uh, between me and my mate. Uh, I got chatting to the guy who owned this Merendero and in a bit of a drunken silliness said, do you want to sell? And he went, yeah. Um, we basically did the deal there and then, um, shook hands on it six weeks later, uh, we were over, I'd sold the restaurant in the UK and we went over to over to Spain and I didn't speak a word of Spanish, which was the stupid thing. So, you know, my Spanish was una cerveza por favor uh, and, and, and a really, really poor accent. And then the first weekend, like the Malagueñas, uh, so all, all, the, all the people from Malaga City, 
used to come down to the beach and we were six and eight deep at the bar uh with people shouting for coffees and it's like you know if you think melbourne's good for coffee you want to try andalusia there is about 14 different variants all based on how many milliliters of espresso is in the cup you know so you use the same size cup a demitasse and there's about 14 different variants in there from a tiny sip of uh of straight coffee to a new bay which is a cloud which is the cup full of milk and then the tiniest bit of coffee just to just to color it up and when you didn't really know the language and you didn't know the styles of coffee that made it hard work on on sort of week one and there was a, there was a lad there uh, uh the local spanish guy and i went oh get behind this bar and give us a hand so you know on he jumps or francy and uh then we we managed to serve everybody and we didn't look back you know it was um it's so from there and i learned the language very quickly because if you don't speak the language of the locals then you don't take a euro and if you don't take a euro you don't stay there very long so uh you know i, I learned that one you've got to you've got to be local you know you've got to look after local and uh, you've got to be able to talk the language no matter what that language is and you know i, I learned spanish fairly quickly um by only going into the spanish bars and you know sitting at the bar and listening to the locals talk and then getting involved in the locals and you know we've got the old spanish mafia over there and you know you get involved with them and at four o'clock in the morning you're coming back out of the out of the bar and the sun's coming up as it were it was uh yeah quite quite in, interesting times um but yeah but then gfc hit and the global financial crisis um, basically wiped me out, um, you know, which is a shame. We had, we, had, we had some good years there, you know, making paella on the beach and the freshest fish. Uh, there was a, an old guy, Salvador, used to row his boat out. His boat was always on the beach where we were. And he'd row his boat, boat out. The guy was about 80. And he'd row out about a kilometre and drop his net and row it round in a circle and handball everything in. And that was my fish of the day, you know. So he'd come in and basically pour the buckets into the sink uh, and that's where we had our fish. So it's literally from the doorstep. So provenance in everything, you know, the old campesinos coming down the mountains with the literally donkey and cart and buying tomatoes and capsicums off them and, you know, all the great local produce that there was there, making gazpacho with the most beautiful tomatoes. Um, yeah, just just great, great memories, you know. What sort of impact did the GFC have on you personally with the closure of your business? Oh, I, yeah, it was, it was a mess. Uh, we probably lost about a million pounds. Um, with it, with the development of what we'd done on the bars and, you know, everything else. So literally lost everything, lost the lost the house, lost the business, ended up scrabbling around for money um, with people I knew, you know, like 50 euros here, you know, ended up doing things like karaoke and, and stuff, anything, anything to make money and living in the back of a van. Um you know, yeah, it was hard. It was really hard. Um, but I, th I think you learn things from that as well. You know, it's, uh, 
learn to just get on you know every day you wake up and you're still breathing is a good day um and you know things always move around and always get better and you know but yeah we were we were doing i was i was writing menus for people we were going in i was going and doing like a day's work in one bar because everybody was in the same boat you know there was there was no money um so operating on a barter system you know working a day just to get a, a meal you know things like that um to have a couple of beers you know and you you do a, a a day in the kitchen or write some menus or you know and, and we all we all sort of rallied together uh but i i went on because facebook was invented then uh, i went on facebook went on facebook and uh, said somebody give me a job and <laughs> there was a guy i'd met uh over in australia in adelaide but uh, we we were there at the cricket, so I came over by my army, you know, and uh, sat, sat there on the hill at Adelaide Oval before it was all built up for AFL and stuff like that now. But, yeah, we sat there and, you know, I watched Michael Vaughan and uh, Brett Lee bowling at him and Glenn McGraw catching him and, you know, Freddie Flintworth and all, all, the, all the greats back in the day. Uh, but I'd met this guy there. Steve, uh, who owned a pub in Adelaide Hills, uh, and he got on me because there were skill shortages back then. Uh, and he got on me, said, "You know, we can't find a chef." Um, and I went, "Well, I'm a chef." So he went, "Okay, well, I'll do the paperwork." And he flew me over here on a four five seven. So I got over here on a visa. So Ken Qantas, the longest route I have ever known of any plane, took me down near two days. Uh, to get over here through Hong Kong and all over the place. So I flew from uh, Spain back to Manchester. I uh, saw my parents for a day and said, by the way, yeah, I'm off to Australia. And I landed here and I've got 200 books in my pocket and a suitcase with 23 kilos in it. Uh, and that was literally all I had left in the world. Tell us about that time of landing here. Did you approach your craft differently, given the circumstances that you had come from? Did you, did it have an impact on the way you saw your career and, and move forward? Well, I just needed to stay alive, basically. So it was, it was a case of doing what, what people wanted to be done. Um, so, you know, I, I landed and um, there's a guy called Kerry Evans who's um, – nearest thing to family that's not blood related so he's known me pretty much all my life and he was in Adelaide uh so he put me up uh and I stayed with him and he picked me up at the airport and we still laugh and joke about it now you know coming up that ramp um coming up that ramp just a, a broken man you know and uh yeah so we we got there and I got up into the hills and we went to the, the place called the Blumberg real beautiful pub it's got a it's got an old like 1920s um truck stuck out of the ceiling you know so hanging like typical typical hills pub really or one of these iconic pubs of Australia uh and there's the this this truck is literally stuck out the second floor of the of the pub and it's you know the old verandas and everything you know class classic picture of a of an Aussie country pub and you know and they were doing the they were doing the salt and pepper squid 
and the sniddies and the steaks and you know the standard fare and that's what the country folk wanted and you learn to do what the customer wants you know so i did that for two years and you know thousands of schnitzels and but eat tons of squid and tons of steak um but still managing to go out to the, uh, the the farmer's market. There was a farmer's market started down the road and there was another one down in Harndorf. So we used to go down there and get produce and, you know, try and put some specials on for the guys, but you could never get away from the standard staples there. And uh, I think that's, <laughs> it's there. And then coming up here uh, and working some of the pubs and stuff around here and same, same menus, you know, salt pepper squid, sniddies, sniddy after sniddy after sniddy after sniddy. I, I actually swore that when I got my own restaurant that we'd never do another schnitzel. Um, and, and in fairness, we haven't, you know, there's, uh, it's, um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't agree with things being thrown into breadcrumbs and deep fried, you know, that's no, not my sort of food. Thank you. <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, it, it, it was good times and, you know, and it, and it got me back. It got me back. And, you know, we used to, I mean, great days off, uh, because of where it was. We used to go to, go to Barossa and go to the Adelaide Hills wineries, you know, on a day off, uh, and cruise around. And I got to, I got to know some of the wineries and some of the people from down there, Barossa, Adelaide Hills, McLaren Vale and what have you. Clare Valley, they're they're on my wine list now, um, you know, and I and I know the winemakers well, and you know they they come up from Adelaide every now and then, and we'll sit and have a, a dinner with them, or we'll do a dinner with them, you know. Or I I still get to travel down there because the the missus is family's from the hills as well, uh, so she's a she's a Lobethal girl. Um, so you know we have to go down and visit the visit the in laws and the outlaws every now and then. Uh, so we get down there, but you can make it a business trip and uh, go to a couple of wineries. So it's always good. <laughs> Tell us about the the idea and creation of Fat Mango. So, yeah, look, it's I sort of spat my dummy a little bit. Um, you know, I've been around up in Darwin then for probably eight or nine years going. You know, it's we've only been open for two years. Um, and it, it was like, I was just tired of doing the same thing for the same people, you know, and everybody making money out of it. And as we all know, you know, there's no, there's no real money in restaurants. Um, but I, I just wanted to do my own thing. You know, I, I was winning provenance awards back in the UK. Uh, we were winning awards for seasonality and the, the quality of the produce and the provenance. And... I wanted to do the same thing up here. You know, I'd been up here and with the culinary federation that I'm involved with and, you know, I I get to know the producers and, you know, there's some, there's some brilliant farms up here. Eva Valley producing great beef and, you know, there's the crop farm. There's, there's, there's loads and loads and loads of things and producers all around Australia. You know, there's a, there's a guy called Jason produces pigs down in, uh, Port Lincoln. Great, absolutely brilliant pigs, um, that we get up here and we use. And, you know, you just got to know all these producers and I wanted to put them on the menu. 
And that's pretty much how Fat Mango came about because I was I was working in uh, a place I'd set up a um, a cafe for uh, disability services, so to train and help people with disability um, get into our industry. And you know, I was involved in there, and but it was it was so corporate. Um, that I wasn't enjoying what we were doing. Uh, and it was, you know, we had to have a meeting to have a meeting about having a meeting to sort something out, you know, that sort of mentality. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm old school chef, you know, get it done. Uh, so, yeah, I didn't really get on with that. And I sort of spat my dummy one day and there was this place available and uh, good location, you know, a reasonable fit out in there. Um, so I think it was the, I think it was about the August of 2020, you know, we were, we were in COVID, um, but the NT didn't suffer as much as say Melbourne did or Sydney did. Um, but we were, we were in the middle of COVID and it was August and I went, you know what, sod this, I'm going to buy and do my own place. Uh, so we did. And then 1st of October, so it took me eight weeks to get it clean, get it done, get the suppliers sorted, get everything done, get the team around me. Um, and, yeah, we opened the door on the 1st of October, so we're just coming up to our second year, literally this next few weeks. Uh, so we'll have a party, we'll crack a bottle probably. Um, you know, it'd be rude not to, wouldn't it? Uh, and that's how Fat Mango came about. It was The idea has been in my notebook for years um fat stemming from you know fat tuesday over in in uh, in the states we were going over there for mardi gras many many years ago uh, i liked that phrase of fat tuesday uh, and then fat being an acronym for pretty hot and tempting sort of worked and mango because it's synonymous with the nt uh, and it was going to be a funky little cafe, you know, was the original idea. And then it turned into this beer moth of a restaurant that, uh, you know, there's, there's no going back from now. Um, it's, uh, and it, it's cool. You know, we've got, a, we've got a funky vibe in there. There's, there's a story for every ingredient, um, even the furniture. Uh, so we redeveloped the bar. Uh, we had Cyclone Marcus up here a few years ago, and a lot of trees came down. You know, mahogany trees and rainforest, rain tree, wood, all came down. And the government had got a, uh, a grant thing going, and I went, you know what, we'll have a little bit of that. So we spent 20 grand on mahogany and redeveloped the bar, and it was all the stuff that had come down from Cyclone Marcus. You know, so people, there's, there's even a story to sit at the bar. And, you know, we've, we've got some beautiful artwork there. There's one of my customers has made this awesome um, saltwater crocodile out of paperbark. Uh, and that, she sits, uh, sits on the back bar amongst all the bottles from, you know, great distillers around Australia, because all the back bars Australian as well. Uh, so every spirit, we actually got our first agave, a um, couple of weeks ago so we've been trying to get every spirit that you can think of in an Australian format uh, we found an agave and uh, an añejo as well so we've now got two 
um, two agave spirits on the back bar amongst all the gins and the whiskies and the rums and the vodkas and uh, the brandies and yeah, everything's Australian. But she is the is the name of the crocodile, um, which means it's a, a, a foreign word for for death. And she sits over the bar watching everything that goes on, and we got some beautiful artwork on the walls from indigenous artists uh, a guy called Reggie Sultan that comes in all the time uh, he's got pictures in Canberra in Government House uh, but he's also got pictures on our wall uh, which are available for people to buy um, you know and then that's all mixed and matched with all the crazy awards we've won in the last two years um, you know, just interspersed all over the place. A few gold plates, a few um, restaurant caterers awards. We've got uh, seafood awards. We've got oh, the, we we got some from the UK um, for international restaurants, um, which is pretty cool. Um, and because of where we are, and I suppose what we're doing. You know, you, you've just got this plethora of people and now the borders are open again. Uh, like people from all over the world coming in and the story's going far and wide, you know. And, and it's, it's a great feeling to, to think, well, you know, my ideas actually come to fruition. Uh, you know, I don't know where it's going to lead and don't know what's going to happen. It'd be really cool if one of the big chains decided to buy the name off me and give me millions of dollars uh, and put it put it into hotels around the country. Uh, that would be cool. And, and, you know, there's provenance everywhere. You know, there's down in the hill, down in Adelaide, there's great produce. Over in Queensland, there's great produce. Over in Perth, there's great produce. Um, you know, what we're doing is very territorial, but very territorial uh but again and it and it's just really funky to do um so yeah maybe maybe one day there'll be you know uh, what we're going to call it a fat marron or a fat whale or banana or depending on which state we're in um (laughs) but yeah you know i think that's the one thing that that's been proven to me that you never know what the future's going to bring you know, when I was in the UK, I didn't know I was going to go to Spain. When I was in Spain, I didn't know that the world was going to collapse. Then we came over to Australia with nothing. And now, you know, now I'm very lucky. I'm, I'm very, very lucky. I, I do get to travel around the country. Uh, we get to showcase what we're doing. Um, you know, it's it's phenomenal. You know, I've, I've just taken a role on as the... Um, chairman for the Olympic Culinary Squad, so Team Australia, um, you know, which which is great. So we're now we're, we're raising money to take a, a group of guys over and girls, obviously, uh, over to um, initially Luxembourg for the World Cup, uh, which is going to be in November, and then we've got Singapore and Malaysia to go to, but ultimately to the culinary olympics in stuttgart in 2024 so you know so you know when i'm when i'm down showcasing crocodile tongue on a crumpet for example uh, then we're also talking to some of the big industry players and saying you know do you want to be involved and look after us and you know sponsor us or funders or donate to us and you know that's that's a really cool thing so we're doing the next generation 
of of cooks and chefs you know because i think if if it's not for things like that and if it's not for competitions and people stretching the mentality and you know learning the craft then you know by the time i end up in the nursing home we're just going to be eating slop out of the bag you know it's uh it's the, the future of chefing's hard as it is, um, but we're changing a lot of the a lot of the mentalities behind old school chef. I mean, I remember being a, a youngster working in kitchens, and Ed Chef would throw a knife across the kitchen and it twang in the door frame next to me, and you know, he'd spit, spit his dummy every now and then, and throw whole breads and you know them smashing on the wall behind us and then being told to clean it up just because he'd been a bit petulant and you know those days thankfully are few and far between now and that's something else that we've done with the restaurant is you know not smashing people for hours um my guys work 40 hours a week that's it on a five-day week so we close for two days you know we don't work bank holidays um we have two weeks off at christmas you know i i've done 40 odd 40 40 plus years of working in kitchens and restaurants and never had christmas and new year off so that was one of the things i wanted to do so we closed on the last practical day before christmas eve so this year is going to be the 23rd and we're not open again until the 5th of january you know uh, and the whole team gets to have time off, and but um, you know we'll we'll have everybody around the house, and we'll have a you know we'll make a paella in the back, uh, and and do some stuff, um, and get together and have a few drinks. But it's about having that time off to be with family. You know, we we've, we've got people in this industry that are from other parts of the world. You know, they get chance to go home and visit the family. Yeah, that's that's what the industry should be doing and i think that's what the industry has missed the boat a little bit um over covid you know there's the, it didn't look after our own um unfortunately and i think that's one of the one of the several reasons that we're in the mess at the minute you know it, uh, but you can only do your own little bit you know at the end of the day it's, uh, no matter no matter what we do you've got to be true to yourself and that's my truth you know so that's what we try and do well martin it's an absolute honor to have you on deep in the weeds today i know you've got so many more stories so please keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon i would absolutely love to loved every minute of this this is the deep in the weeds podcast i'm anthony huckstep Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well. <laughs>